Episode 13, Fixing Healthcare with Pete Sheldon from Opus Science. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. This is Stacey Richter, your host of the Relentless Health Value podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Pete Sheldon from Opus Science about the why behind the places where healthcare breaks down, either because the doctor is not employing best practices or because the patient is not doing what they are supposed to be doing. The second part of what Pete does is figuring out what to do with this information In other words, what measures or countermeasures are going to bend the needle and move everybody into a a better place? Pete has spent a bunch of time studying patient centricity. I think these days everyone uh, would agree that patient centricity is a thing. But the question still remains, how do you accomplish it? How do you accomplish patient centricity really in a meaningful way that at the end of the day is going to improve patient outcomes and is going to really matter? Before we welcome Pete to the program today, let me just mention, because I probably don't mention it often enough, this podcast is sponsored by Franklin HealthCom. Welcome to the program this morning, Pete. Hey, Stacey. How are you today? So let's talk about you for a second. Talk about your current role and as, as president of Opus Science. I run a healthcare research and quality improvement organization based in Annapolis, Maryland, um, called Opus Science. Right now, we are doing a number of different projects, both commercially supported uh, through industry, but also foundations and government support on some of our projects also. The very, very beginning, where did you begin? You know, what's your, what's your education in? Yeah, exactly. I, d- I didn't have a healthcare background coming out of school. I was, uh, just came out with an economics degree, but started to work for a company that published a practice management journal that at the time was just local to Maryland, but over the course of about 15 years, it ended up being a nationally available practice management journal, actually the largest one in the country. Um, It was called Physician's Practice. It had about 270,000 circulation, I think, at its height. The idea was is giving community physicians practice management information to work on patient scheduling, uh, reimbursement issues, insurance issues, and liability issues, things that, again, off the clinical pathway, but things that are obviously very important to the practitioner and to the practice of medicine. And long story short, we realized that even though it's not clinical information, it should be CME accredited. It's important enough and, and it impacts patient care enough that it should be CME accredited. So we started down the path of getting the journal accredited and then realized we could probably do this ourselves. So we became an accredited provider in the early 2000s, and that's when we started to dip into the clinical side also in this whole performance improvement CME uh, space. That's actually really interesting because the funny thing that I've seen from, from my perspective, and let me know if this might be different or the same as yours, is that managed markets, which is my generic term for anything that has to do with reimbursement, And medical education, which is my term for any clinical education or CME, non-CME, it's interesting to hear that they sort of started out in the same place because in my experience, they've sort of wildly diverged there for a while and became very far apart. You know, if you're if you were working on reimbursement issues, you had no idea kind of what was going on on the medical education side and vice versa. And it seems like now they're sort of starting to come back together again as physicians are obviously being paid for outcomes. Now, all of a sudden, the goal has converged. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're exactly right. And, and it has to be that way. 
And I think that convergence is happening as, as a result of, you know, the market changes that we're starting to see on the healthcare side, whether it's the patient-centered medical home, it's accountable care organizations, you know, the accountable, you know, the ACA, those types of things are sort of driving this convergence whereby we can't look at education for providers specifically, but also on the patient side, just as clinical information about guidelines and new therapies and, you know, those types of things, you know, we, it's obviously critical to this new paradigm that physicians understand what their place is in the overall healthcare environment, how they can interact with other providers, but also with payers and with pharmacy benefit managers and with hospitals and with patients. And, you know, so you're starting to see a convergence there. You at, at Opus Science, I, I, it is my understanding that you have two big buckets of work that you do. On one side, you do research and research work. And then on the other side, you figure out what to do with that information in order to, to fix any issues that you identify with that research. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the research side of the equation there. You know, could you talk a little bit about what is research in your world? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I think our fundamental you know, philosophy is we look at our healthcare system right now, and this is what we talk about at Opus Science when we have our strategic uh, meetings. And the question is, why doesn't our system work better? Right? I mean, we have the right people, we have the best facilities, we have great access to more therapeutic tools like drugs and medical devices than almost anyone in the world. So why doesn't it work better? And I think, you know, we've come up with two basic areas that we, we think that we really need to look at to answer that question better and, and to help the problem. Number one is we continue to view the practice of medicine as something that's very discrete and two-dimensional, right? It's the recognition of a set of symptoms. I go to my healthcare provider. I get a diagnosis. They prescribe a therapy that will, that will fix it. And then we don't have to worry about that problem anymore until the next thing happens and we go back to the doctor. I mean, that's kind of the way we think about the healthcare system. As an analogy, it's kind of like looking at the car industry and, you know, they build cars and they sell them to people, but all of their resources are focusing on the repair services. How can we educate our repairmen to be better at fixing our cars instead of just looking at building better cars and making sure that owners are taking better care of them? So again, you know, it seems like we need to shift our focus a little bit. So that's one thing that we want to look at. But the other thing is, we don't feel like we accurately assess why patients behave the way that they do and what are their motivations. Why don't they see a doctor earlier when they have symptoms? Why don't they take their medications as, the, as they're prescribed? Why don't they exercise as much as they should? You know, and we like to, there's lots of reasons that we cite around this which are, which are accurate. Like obviously there's financial concerns, there's access to resources, family support for sure. But that's incomplete. Clearly there's a value judgment being made by patients that puts other priorities in their life ahead of these concerns. So the question we want to ask is what are those prior what are those priorities and how can we create value in healthy behaviors so that they move sort of up the list. And so your question about the research that we do is we do both. We look at what's happening with healthcare providers and what's happening with patients. And we do it from both a quantitative but also a qualitative standpoint. Narrative is very important to what we do here from a research from a research focus. Qualitative and narrative research is where we are not just looking at survey data and market research data about what's happening in practice. We want to understand why it's happening. What are some of the underlying issues and the thought processes that make healthcare providers do one thing versus another and make patients behave one way versus another? 
And the best way, way that we've been able to do that is to do an extensive amount of immersive research, again, mostly live interviews, but some focus groups also with providers and patients. And we do it through a very systematic method where we have interview guides with trained researchers that go in and interview the healthcare practitioners and patients, but then also code the transcripts that come out of those um, interviews in a way that allows us to utilize computer software to analyze it in almost a quantitative fashion. So you can start to cut the data all sorts of different ways, whether it's by gender, whether it's by the amount, number of years that the physicians or the healthcare providers have in practice, whether it's by their geographic location or their practice environment. And you can really get some really interesting insights as to what's happening there and ask lots of follow-up questions around why is this important to you? What else needs to happen for you to improve your care of patients? And, you know, we've done a lot of this over the last three and a half years, and a lot of it's been published data. So it's, it's really an exciting space. Is the objective of that purely academic? Or, I mean, I know that a lot of your, your customers are, are in the industry. So why, why do they want this information? Yeah, sure. And, and you're right. So, no, it's not completely academic. The, the real idea behind it is, all right, now that we have this information and these insights, what types of tools can we create or resources and get them in the hands of patients and providers to help move the needle? So, absolutely. The second half of what we do is once we've done the research is we actually go out and work with patient advocacy groups or professional associations and actually create the tools and educational resources that are needed to help that we've identified. So basically what you're doing in the research side of the equation is you're figuring out that there is a glitch in the continuum, that that there is a, a problem at a certain point where care is following down or, or where patients are dropping off, for example. That's exactly right. And I, I would the only thing I would add to that is it's not just there's a glitch in the system and here's where it is. It's why does it happen, right? And, and, and how do the patients and the, and the healthcare providers view that glitch? Maybe that glitch is actually something that's just endemic to the system and it's not something that we need to spend time on. There's something else that we can focus our resources on better. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the why is going to be a very important insight in order to figure out how to fix it. That's right. And it's probably the most important aspect outside of it, it's happening. That's exactly right. Is there any examples that you might be able to give of uh, of this this research and and maybe a a startling insight that you discovered? A startling insight. And, you know, there's there's you know it it depends obviously on the disease state and it depends on the the types of healthcare practitioners that we're interviewing. But we've done an extensive amount in oncology specifically recently, also diabetes, but oncology recently. And we just completed a, a project that we did in collaboration with uh, the Duke Clinical Research Institute, which looked at how academic and community physicians treat multiple myeloma patients and sort of how they think through the strategy from induction therapy after they're diagnosed, what's that first line versus how they understand what a response looks like from chemotherapy regimen. And then is there a second line therapy and how do they you know, uh, work in transplant considerations, et cetera, into their treatment protocols. And then we looked at it. So we did all those interviews and we did it. Half of them were academic focused and specialists in myeloma and the other were just general community oncologists. What you find is there's lots of similarities, obviously, especially with regards to first line therapy. They're pretty much using the same regimens and the same types of protocols whether you go to an academic or a community oncologist. But there's little things that we didn't understand at first, or at least it didn't show up in the literature that we found through the interviews that were pretty interesting. Number one is their use of risk stratification with patients. 
it was just very different in the community setting versus the academic setting. The criteria that they used to risk stratify was much more specific in the academic versus the community. But also what was interesting is the risk stratification rarely made any difference. Whether patients were deemed high risk or low risk made almost zero difference with regards to the therapy that they were given up front. So it's interesting that we, we don't think of it that way. And so, you know, that's something that we're actually following up on right now to see if we can create tools to help improve therapy choice based on risk stratification. So wait, so so the, yeah. the patients were being stratified, i.e. Yes. some patients were being deemed high risk very meticulously. But then yes. at the end of the day, nothing happened with that information. Is that it's kind of that, Yeah, it's not. And again, we have to be careful because we can't say that nothing happened. But the regimens that they were given up front tended to be the same whether they were low risk or high risk. And again, there's some, there's some evidence to suggest that there, there's probably some individualization of treatments that would be appropriate there. But, you know, again, we, we hope that, again, if a patient is high risk versus low risk, that that might lend some sort of urgency with regards to stem cell transplant options, you know, getting patients into therapy more, more quickly, potentially referring them to myeloma specialists. You know, that part of it, we're not sure. But it's just interesting that, you know, I think generally as industry, we assume that higher risk patients would get a different regimen than low risk. Pete, does, does evidence-based medicine incorporate risk stratification at, at this point? Yeah, and again, this is just one example, but certainly there there are criteria involved with risk stratification that are you know ev- evidence based and that are heavily cited in the literature, but also in practice guidelines and protocols and in care pathways around the around the world. But what we find is that a lot of times when we're talking to people about again the the treatment path that that they provide for patients or that they recommend is that it's outside of that evidence base. And not necessarily because it's wrong, but it's based on their experience with other patients being in similar situations and what we're sort of calling tacit knowledge. It's things that they may not be able to cite or even explain why they would choose X versus Y, but they say it's sort of a gut feeling they get. They based on It's based on their experience. And we think that that's an important point, especially in this myeloma project that we did, because if you're seeing a myeloma specialist who sees hundreds and hundreds of patients a year with your condition, that's probably a really good thing that they're relying on their experience and sort of their rule of thumb with other patients in the past. That's exactly why you go to them, right? But if you're seeing a community oncologist who maybe sees two or three of these patients a year with your your condition, and they're relying on some sort of tacit knowledge, almost like a cognitive shortcut or a heuristic to make treatment decisions, that might not be to your advantage. It's just something that the, the, that the patients need to weigh when they're, when they're choosing their providers if they do have a choice. I think it's an interesting point about human nature that people learn from experience and history repeats itself all the time because people have to experience things for themselves in order to, to perhaps believe in it. That's right. That's exactly right. Let's move on to to the second bucket, if you will, of, of services that you provide is, okay, now we've got this great information. We understand exactly where care might be breaking down or where physicians are, are not perhaps employing the well-proven data-backed standard of care. Now what? Now what do we do? So now, you know, what we typically will do is we'll take that data. And again, we usually have a steering committee for our projects made up of, you know, members of the target audience, certainly, but also key opinion leaders and thought leaders and educators in that space to say, okay, 
what can we do with this data and what doesn't exist out there? What are the unmet needs that, that we can potentially come up with some countermeasures for and put into practice and test? There's a bunch of different examples of projects that we've done, but one in particular um, that we're working on right now, which is pretty exciting, is in the diabetes space. This is a collaboration that we're doing with the American Pharmacist Association Foundation. I'm not sure, Stacy. are you familiar, and this is in the diabetes space, are you familiar with the Asheville Project from about 16, 17 years ago? Why don't you refresh us, Pete? Okay, so the Asheville Project was something that the city of Asheville, North Carolina commissioned, again, it was not quite 20 years ago, probably 15 to 16 years ago, which was looking at their city employees, and especially those with chronic diseases like hypertension, um, dyslipidemia, and diabetes, is looking at how can we get better resources and education so that they can, uh, again, make better decisions and we can improve patient outcomes. The interesting part about what they did is, is they heavily relied on pharmacists, which was new. They heavily relied on pharmacists as being a healthcare provider that could actually provide a lot of information and support services to patients and sort of help them because they see them much more often typically than healthcare providers like physicians or endocrinologists, et cetera. They found is it worked extremely well. Again, the patient outcomes from that study were extremely impressive in the diabetes space and it made a lot of news uh, nationwide about what they were able to accomplish just through bringing in other resources for patients. One of the things that why I do think that the Asheville context is really important is that whenever anyone brings up any sort of initiative employing pharmacists or engaging pharmacists in the uh, improvement of patient outcomes, the Asheville project is, is always cited as the you know sort of baseline. That's right. It is interesting to see how it sort of fits in the picture. So basically what happened was is that you know you're working with a team now and Asheville gets cited. One of the reasons one of the things that was determined after the fact was that one of the reasons why Asheville works so well was based on very specific geographic kind of yes. uh, you know it was a sort of a perfect storm of, of things that that contributed to its success. So other subsequent projects didn't work so well simply because they didn't have that perfect storm that that Asheville had. That's um, right. So you guys decide to tackle this. Yeah. So again, I, I can't take credit at the beginning. That was, this is the, again, the American Pharmacists Association sort of ran with the ball and, uh, and started looking at what those elements are and how they can incorporate that into not only other environments, but also in trying to scale it and say, let's not just do it in one city. Can we replicate this in multiple cities and environments? So over the next eight to nine years, they did several um, well-published studies on, uh, again, there's the Diabetes 10 City Challenge, there's Project Impact, there's the Patient Self-Management Credential, where they are really plugging the pharmacist into that care coordination piece and looking at patient outcomes, again, before and after for those that enrolled. But most importantly, and this is where Opus Science came in a couple of years ago, back in 2011 is they started to see that the economic benefit to payers was substantial when they had patients that actually went through the process. And again, on average, besides the fact that the patients that went through this pr process, and I'll explain that in a second, their A1Cs were better, their blood pressure was better, their lipids were better, and on a consistent basis, they continued to improve. But they said even in the first year, payers saved an average of almost $1,000 per patient for those of, that went through this process. Wow. Yeah, so again, and, and, and what's really exciting about this is this is one of those projects where all of the incentives align. Payers are saving money, a lot of money. 
Providers are getting paid for services that they weren't getting paid for in the past. I've eaten a lot of diabetes education. And again, this is in the past strictly with pharmacists. Patients were um, being improved not only from a health standpoint, but from an economic standpoint because the payers would waive their copays and give them discounts on medical supplies based on how well and how far along they went in this process. So the patients are better off financially, the providers are better off financially, the payers are better off financially, and the, and, the, and overall it's healthier. What's the name of this, this, this program that, that had been begun yeah. prior to you joining the, in 2011? Yeah, it's the Patient Self-Management Credential by the American Pharmacist Association. And now sort of the shorthand name we use for it is diabetes credentialing. It's patient credentialing. The American Pharmacist Association, they decided to, to to run this. Could I call it a pilot? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was much larger. They've, they've had, probably had 5,000 plus patients go through the process thus far. Where are the patients coming from? Are payers sort of donating patients to the, to the, to the pilot? Or, or? Yeah, they, exactly. It's not, they're not donating. It's self-funded employers, that uh, self-insured employers that are making this program available to their employees with diabetes. Oh, that so makes sense. They'll publicize it and they'll say, for all of our employees with type 2 diabetes, here's a project that we're doing in conjunction with our local pharmacies. If you take part, here are the potential incentives for you. And they, they can decide to opt in or opt out. They weren't mandated to do it, but they chose to do it. And then the pharmacists, uh, the payers and the pharmacists would look at those patients that went through the credentialing process and those that didn't. And they would compare them at the end, both from a patient outcome standpoint and an economic standpoint. And the project itself is very simple. I mean, it's elegant in its simplicity, the way that they designed it. It's strictly a series of assessments that the patients have to take when they refill their prescriptions. So there's a knowledge assessment where they have to talk, uh, demonstrate their knowledge of their disease state and how to take care of themselves. There's a skills assessment where they have to look at things about, uh, again, are they able to utilize a glucometer in the right way? Are they able to inject themselves if they're on insulin or injectable therapy? Uh, can they demonstrate skills with regards to carb counting? Those types of things. There's skills assessments and also performance assessments. Are they getting their eyes examined once a year? Are they going to a podiatrist to get their feet checked? Those types of things to make sure that they're doing everything right. As they progress and they demonstrate better knowledge, skills, and performance, they get more incentives off their copays and their medical supplies. So the better that they do, the more money that they save. So again, it's very simple and it's easy to administer. And again, it's it's worked in multiple environments, including the disproportionate share population of Medicare Medicaid patients. So again, it's it's been very successful. And where we are right now is we have worked with them over the last couple of years into migrating that from strictly a pharmacy-based pro program to also into primary care and endocrinology so that we're actually bringing the physicians in as part of this process so they can be administering these assessments assessing where their patients are, providing them educational resources, and getting them into the system so it's not just reliant on the pharmacist, although the pharmacist is obviously it's still important part of it. Let me know if this is universal, is that an Im improved education, in other words, patients who better understand their disease state, leads to greater adherence to their care program. That's that, yeah, that is true. And there's evidence from this project that it suggests exactly that. Part of it was looking at their lipid medications and their adherence to lipid medications. And it was, it's, I want to, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was something to the extent of it was almost like after six months, 93% of the patients were still um, persistent and adherent on their medications, which is obviously more than twice what the industry average is. So we see that, but also to your first point, which I think is important 
is they look at they looked at the baseline A1Cs of the patients that came in and did that initial knowledge assessment, which is just a 30-some-odd question multiple-choice test that the patients had to take. The patients that did the best on that test consequently had the best, the lowest um, baseline A1C, and those that did the worst had the highest A1C. There was a direct correlation between what they came to the project knowing and what that baseline A1C is, which was interesting. So that also separates out the economic variable there because could if you toss that in the mix, you could also say that they're more persistent and adherent when there's an economic win for them. That's sure. Absolutely. So again, we're working on right now, we're doing some pilots in, in the Ohio market um, and looking at in Miami, Florida, and also potentially up in Minnesota, where we're, again, migrating it into these other environments, but also looking at involving a payer, not just a self-insured employer, but an actual payer, whether a regional accountable care organization or a health plan, to look at this on a much larger scale, because if they're saving $1,000 per patient, this is real money and real numbers that they can look at. So very exciting stuff that we're working on now. Especially in the diabetes class, considering the the pervasiveness of that disease category, it sounds like you have uh, picked a a project that can bend the curve. That's awesome. We, we picked we picked an area where there's a lot of work to do. That's for certain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's get into some uh, action steps, for example. So say, uh, you know, based on your experience, is there something, you know, so say I, I, I'm a provider or I work in a, a payer or I work in the pharma industry, for example. What Could you think of one thing, a very actionable thing that I could do or think about? I could sit down right now and, and hammer out that could help me begin to improve patient outcomes? From our experience, and this sort of gets back to, you know, the patient engagement work that we work on here at Opus Science, patient engagement and patient centricity is such a key buzzword right now in the industry. And you you hear a lot of people talk about it. And that's exactly right. And we totally agree with that's got to be the focus. The question is, what does that mean and what does that look like? And so one of the things that we're working on here internally when we're looking at projects in different therapeutic areas to look at opportunities in is go sit down and talk down to, talk to a patient with a chronic disease for an hour. And again, whether it's diabetes, Crohn's disease, multiple sclerosis, it doesn't matter. And, and talk to them, but stay away from asking questions about, you know, what it's like having their disease and questions about their medications or quality of life. Ask them what they need. And this is something that we've learned, you know, through the, the diabetes project, but also through other ones, is that if you sit down and you ask a patient, say, tell, just tell us what you need. Once they answer that, don't stop there. Say, okay, what else do you need? And you keep doing that until they can't come up with any other answers. And when you look back at your notes, you're going to have this little small library of, of patient needs, and I'll bet you more than one of them is currently unmet in the market and is shared by thousands of patients. And it's, it's something that we've learned, and again, this is a technique that providers are starting to use you know, called motivational interviewing, but it's, it's where you go in and figure out not what don't you know, don't ask them why they do X and why they don't do Y, just ask them what they need. And I think that you know, uh, you're going to find that there's – a, a plethora of information that you can get from patients that is very actionable. And so my advice would be, you know, if you're doing, looking to do something about improving patient care, absolutely go out and try to design an app that improves patient education or monitoring of exercise or whatever it is. I think those are all great things and help a great many patients. But really look at what does the patient want and need and start from that standpoint. And I don't think we do that enough. That's actually very fascinating because if you take any sales training, 
you know, sales training 101. Yeah, exactly. What you question, will, right? yeah, exactly. You will always be told over and over and over again, the, the best way to sell a drill is to sell a hole. That's right. For example, you know, you can't be a solution looking for a problem. And unless we understand really what a patient needs, then we could be creating all these things that we think they need. But at the end of the day, they're solutions looking for for problems. They're looking for something else. Exactly. You know, we did just an anecdotal example. We did a project in uh, MS for neurologists where we were teaching them how to have these conversations with patients. At first, they were fairly reluctant um, in their participation because we were actually having them role play and things. And you can imagine, you know, they were nervous that this was some sort of charm school for neurologists. And, you know, we assured them that there was, there was a method to our madness. And we had them sit down and talk to uh, other neurologists where the other neurologists would role pay, play as a patient. And for the first 90 seconds, we said, okay, take us, you know, just do it as you would do a ra- regular patient induction. Ask them the questions you want to ask them, listen to their answers, get the, and, you know, take the notes that you want. And then we had them stop and do it again for 90 seconds, but they couldn't say anything else. They couldn't say anything to the patient. They couldn't answer. They couldn't interrupt. They couldn't offer anything while the patient was talking. All they could say was, what else? That was the only thing they could say. And of course, they're crawling out of their skin after about 20 seconds as people are telling them about their, you know, their disease. They have other questions they want to follow up with, but they weren't allowed to do that. And it was interesting at the end, they were like, wow we got so much more information about what's going on with this patient by not just jumping in with the first thing that came out of their mouth and, and sort of dissecting it. And it was a real eye-opening experience. And I think that's something we as education and quality improvement people and people in industry, we need to start doing that a lot more. And I think that also kind of goes back to, once again, the idea that our first instinct is to jump on something before we really have taken the time to understand what the full scope of the situation is. So if we jump in too fast, we kind of steer the direction down a path that might not actually be the most important thing from a a patient standpoint. It's just the first thing that the patient happened to think of. Right. And I know what you're talking about and I can fix it. Therefore, let's talk about that because I know what to say. You know, that's exactly right. And unless we get all those things out on the table, we can't prioritize. You know, basically, we're prioritizing based on the order that the patient happened to think of something. Right. Or based on my understanding of as as you talk, I'm prioritizing for you versus understanding what the patient's priorities are. That's our philosophy. Yeah. Considering that, just like you, I've heard the statement, patient engagement is the blockbuster of the decade a a million times. It would seem like as much effort as we put into understanding clinical products that we understand exactly how to use engagement to produce the results that we are looking for as best as we can. I agree. What advice would you give someone who might be considering getting into your line of work? You know, so if it's somebody who's kind of just starting out in their career or they're looking for a change, you know, maybe they're working for a big company right now um, and is looking to either move into a more entrepreneurial area or move into your space, what would you what would you suggest they think about? It's almost less because, again, I, I don't know that I'm qualified to give advice to people new in the industry because I've taken a very strange path myself through, again, medical publishing into continuing a medical education for providers into patient engagement and those types of things. But I do think one of the things that, that I, I see you know, young people in our industry make is they don't understand that healthcare, and I mean both the healthcare system here and also just healthcare itself, it, it's a messy industry. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense necessarily, but 
you know, I think a lot of times when you're new to this, you think that things ought to line up nicely and that there's a solution out there that something's going to come along where a patient has symptoms, they go to the doctor, they get diagnosed quickly, they get treated, and they go on their way and everybody's happy. And that does happen a lot of times, but oftentimes those things don't happen. And the story is very different. There's a lot of elements in healthcare that create obstacles to patient outcomes. You know, there's conflicting incentives among payers, physicians, you know, pharmacy benefit managers, hospitals. There's poor communication and care coordination, financial realities that patients have to deal with. But understand that creating solutions with what you have at your disposal is a really worthwhile thing. Right? I think everybody would like to jump in and make sure that the Affordable Care Act works extremely well and that ACOs become the new thing and that everybody's healthier and for diabetes patients, A1Cs drop dramatically over the next 10 years. And that may happen. And again, there's a lot of smart people that are working on that right now. But what can you do in your level, in your position right now, with your knowledge base to do something meaningful for a patient? And if it's for a patient, I'll bet it's just as good for thousands of patients. And so looking at that and trying to figure out what you can do with what you have, I think is important. It's interesting that you say that you, you mentioned reimbursement relative to, I don't know, weird choices being made, mm-hmm. as that is something that has been a repeated theme throughout the interviews that we have had thus far, that basically it's the same thing. And I, I have an economics degree, too. And, and one of the first rules of thumb in economics is follow the dollar. Right. If you want to figure out why things are happening. And I have heard that sage advice mentioned repeatedly that if you if you want to change outcomes, change reimbursement or, or align the reimbursement to what you incent is what you you're going to get. That's exactly right. But from my from my standpoint, I don't have a line of sight into working with the healthcare finance administration, et cetera, and looking at CMS and trying to figure out how they're reimbursing, you know, physicians based on outcomes versus procedures, um, you know, as they're doing now. So what I can do, though, is, again, working with the American Pharmacists Association to do something with self-insured employers to start with and looking at a small group and say, can we change reimbursement in the way that physicians and patients get incentivized and, and pharmacists get incentivized to care for diabetes patients and see if that makes a difference. And then once that does, now what else can we do with it? What's next for you, Pete? You got any cool things that are coming up that um, might be of interest? We're looking, there's this technology piece of it, um, not necessarily on the reimbursement or on the um, communication side, but around patient simulation that we're really interested in right now. And there's a lot of evidence out there that training, this is for graduate medical education, but also for continuing medical education in the healthcare professions is looking at how can, you know, um, technologically based patient simulation help train physicians and and other providers to provide better care. And we've got a couple of partners right now that are doing some really exciting stuff on on adaptive learning in um, patient simulation whereby people are treating patients virtually via their computer through training simulations, but it's not necessarily that there's a right or wrong answer. It's just whatever path they're taking the patient down, it's noted is against, you know, sort of what the guideline and the protocols would be. And it's not whether or not they're right or wrong, but they can see what the outcomes of those decisions are long term. And then instead of just saying, well, so you got this wrong, the patient didn't do as well as they should 10 years out, it actually gives them another patient that's that's similar. And it takes them through this until they get it right. 
And again, a lot of this has been shown to work really well in, in early in childhood and early adult education. And this is something that we're working on right now is trying to come up with some really, really strong frameworks to create these types of environments, create that platform so that we can layer in different chronic disease states and educate a very large number of practitioners, not only just in the U.S., but across the world, especially in underserved markets. So that's something we're looking at a lot right now. I love it. That's fascinating. And it kind of goes back to, it circles right back to the very beginning of the conversation where we talked about why history repeats itself is that it's people's personal experience. So basically what you're doing is offering people the opportunity, you know, physicians or, or, or providers, the opportunity to have all these experiences without necessarily being in a large institute where they see so many patients. Well, either that or it allows, you know, and also <laughs> conversely, not conversely, but additionally, it allows them to see a lot of number, a, a large number of patients, and again, some very difficult, probably high risk patients, without putting any patients at risk. Right? They practice. You yes. practice, like you said, and you get that experience without actually having to do it in practice. You know, that's probably the main point. Thank you, Pete. Mm-hmm. Not the same. <laughs> I don't know if it's the main point. It is a point. <laughs> It was really great speaking with you today. This is a very interesting conversation. I learned a lot. No, thank you very much, Stacey. I really enjoyed it. And again, thank you for what you're doing here with Relentless Health Value. I think it's a great service that you provide and there's a lot of great information on there. So glad to be a part of it. All of the links that Pete mentioned are located at relentlesshealthvalue.com slash 13. You'll find Pete's biography and the show notes for this episode. Also on the RelentlessHealthValue.com website, over in the sidebar on the right-hand side, you will find a box that says Sponsored by Franklin HealthCom. If you click on that link, you will get shot over to the Franklin HealthCom website where you can find a little bit more information about the sponsor of the show. Did you know that you do not have to remember to download the latest Relentless Health Value podcast each week? you can subscribe. If you subscribe, then the episode will be automatically delivered to you in one of two ways. The first way is via iTunes. If you go to RelentlessHealthValue.com and you look over in the right-hand sidebar, you will see a gigantic orange dot. If you click on that dot, you will be taken over to iTunes. And if you hit subscribe there, then every week in your iTunes library, the podcast will automatically download. If you use the podcast app, it will be extra convenient. The other way to subscribe is by looking right underneath that large orange dot to a little form there that says, get the podcast delivered to your email. If you click on that button and type in your email address, then once a week you will get an email with a link to the podcast. It is very easy to subscribe. I'm so glad that you listened this week. Please interact with us on Twitter. We are at Relentless Health on Twitter, and that would be Relentless with only one S. So Relentless with one S, health. Please definitely feel free to interact with us, leave a comment, ask a question. We'd love to hear from you. And I very much hope that you'll tune in next week.